This is Hubwonk. I am your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. While this year may forever be associated with a pandemic, 2020 is also a presidential election year. In November, voters will be asked to elect the next president amid concerns that doing so can expose themselves and poll workers to the COVID-19 virus. The effect of the pandemic on elections has already caused some states to cancel in-person voting, while other states have delayed their primaries. What can be done to improve the safety of voters in the Commonwealth? Are our leaders informed and preparing? And will proposed changes and procedures have a meaningful effect on our confidence in the legitimacy of the result? Our guest today is Professor Charles Stewart III of MIT, co-director of the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project and director of the MIT Election Data and Science Lab. Professor Stewart has researched and written extensively on election and voting methods and the importance for the process to be transparent and fair. Professor Stewart will share with us his observations on the range of voting practices in other states, what he sees as essential changes required to make November's election safe for voters, and lay out what steps Massachusetts must take now to encourage a smooth, safe, and fair process is ready in time for November. Joining me from Pioneer is Mary Connaughton. Mary is Director of Government Transparency and Director of Finance and Administration. Mary will share with us her perspective on how such a massive undertaking is likely to be managed by the state and local administrators. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Great to be here, Drew. Well, Mary, with less than six months to go before a presidential election, are you seeing any signs on Beacon Hill that uh, we're getting ready for a presidential election during a pandemic? Yes, all the signs are in place. Um, many things are happening on Beacon Hill right now. The House and the Senate, uh, they have a subcommittee called the Election Laws Committee, and they've been meeting, and actually a bill just came out of the committee to uh, allow expanding, expanded voting procedures for both the upcoming September 1st primary and the November 3rd general election. So those procedures that will be voted on by the full House and Senate, or may have already been voted on upon the airing of this uh, podcast, include uh, a requirement for the Secretary of State who oversees elections to send all uh, application for a mail-in voting for mail-in voting. So you have to apply for mail-in voting. And the Secretary of State Galvin will send that to all 4.5 million registered voters in Massachusetts. The Secretary under this legislation, if it passes, will also be required to set up a website so people can request an application online via the website. It also will require that for the upcoming primary on September 1st, that there be seven days in advance of September 1st where people can vote in person to stagger the people coming in to make it safe. And for the general, the law calls for 14 days of in-person voting up to November 3rd. And again, that's to keep people uh, distant from one another so they can exercise their constitutional right. Additionally, the traditional voting procedures will be in place on the September 1st, September 1st primary and November 3rd general election. 
So you can still go to your poll where you normally go. The change though will be that there'll be no checkout. So once you pass in your ballot or fill out your ballot, you don't have that second stop to check out before you put the ballot into the voting machine. So that's what's afoot on Beacon Hill right now to address these major challenges and uh, keep our constitutional uh, processes running. Well, I'm glad to hear uh, so much is being done. Uh, I didn't know what your answer would be before I asked it, so I'm pleased there is so much going on. Uh, I think our guest is going to help uh, address uh, what's going on in other states. Uh, relative to those other states, how he sees our preparations going. And of course, I'm sure even with um, all the preparations we've done, there'll still be some concerns of whether those additional procedures uh, are safe from uh, potential fraud or from any sort of manipulation. And of course, the underlying question, uh, does changing the voting process have any effect on the outcome of an election? So I'm interested to hear what our guest has to say. So um, after our brief musical break. We'll return with Professor Charles Stewart of MIT. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Silvaggi with Pioneers Mary Connaughton. We're now joined by Professor Charles Stewart of MIT. Welcome to the show, Charles. Glad to be here. So, uh, to get kicked off, uh, I know that while all states offer some form of mail-in voting, only six states will be mailing ballots to all voters in November. What's the situation for the rest of the states and territories, and where does Massachusetts currently fall? Well, most of the rest of the states and territories um, have something called no-excuse absentee balloting. Um, you know, there's, to get in, I won't get into the weeds, but there's all sorts of variants. But basically, the idea is that if you request a, a mail ballot, um, you get one without having to show an excuse. There's about a dozen states or so that still are what I call my father's um, absentee voting, um, where you have to ask for an excuse. Um, Massachusetts is in an odd situation, actually, um, because formally we still have an excuse required absentee balloting. However, um, your listeners will remember that um, several years ago we created this um, hybrid thing called mail early voting mm. and mail in early voting functions like no excuse absentee ballot. So Massachusetts oftentimes gets categorized into the old fashioned style, but in fact, in Massachusetts, you can vote by mail simply by um, asking for a mail in early vote application and you can essentially vote by mail. So we've got a baseline there. Um, election day is November 3rd. I'm guessing COVID-19 will still be with us. Uh, what's the risk of staying the course with the current system that we have? Well, I mean, in states that, especially as states don't, that don't expand um, voting by mail, I, I see three um, dangers. The first, is the obvious one is public health dangers, that by going out and being around other people, you, the voter, uh, put yourself at risk. Um, even more um, troubling is that you put um, election officials at risk. The calculation I did was that, you know, as a voter in Massachusetts, you might encounter 20 other people in a polling place, but uh, an election worker is going to encounter between 700 and 1,000 people during the day. And so it really puts him at risk. So that's thing number one. Um, thing number two is chaos and um, bad experience. Um, with social distancing, we're going to have 
um, you know, restrictions for and the number of people allowed in polling places. That's going to put, you know, the lines out the door, down the street, maybe around the block, everywhere. Um, there's going to be difficulty in keeping some of the polling places open, polling places in senior centers, in schools, and those sorts of places. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of scrambling around already for in-person places to vote. And so there's unconceivably chaos if we don't do things. And then finally, um, there's a concern about lower turnout. In fact, we saw this um, arguably in the special election in California, the 25th district a couple of weeks ago, where um, word on the ground is that um, a lot of people were both, were, well, were afraid to, to go to the polling places and were also um, uncertain about the quality of the mail balloting situation. And so if we don't get our acts together, um, nothing good can occur. Charles, um, the, Massachusetts has about 4.5 million registered voters. So if it's mail-in primarily, assuming that many of those do choose to actually apply for a mail-in ballot, that is a lot of paper to process, to print, to track, to verify. How does that process work? Where, where does the state enter in and where do the town and city clerks enter into the process if it were to, if the legislation in Massachusetts were to pass and there were mail-in voting? Right, well, it, well, part of it really depends on, you know, what, what variant eventually gets passed, right? Um, right. But if, I, I'm assuming um, without much inside information that one way or the other that Massachusetts could, could very well see half, over half of its voters vote by mail this time. Um, you know, the challenge, as you suggest, is in Massachusetts, a lot of the administration is done at the local level, in fact, fundamentally at the town and city level. Um, and, you know, this can be both a blessing and a curse. I think with something like this, it can be a curse because it puts down to the local officials the very detailed um, administrative tasks that need to be done to manage all this paper. Now, um, in fairness, they're managing a lot of this paper already, right? I mean, I bet to some degree, a ballot is a ballot. Mm -hmm. And in Massachusetts, we, you know, we end up scanning all of the absentee ballots, mail ballots, in the precincts on Election Day. So, you know, part of it is not necessarily an increase in the amount of paper around Election Day. The real increase comes in managing the requests for the ballots, um, tearing open the ballots, um, um, checking against the applications and the signatures, those sorts of things. And, um, and that's where, um, you know, you worry if in Cuddyhunk or in Florida or in you know, the smaller, smaller towns, they have all the same responsibilities as Boston, Cambridge, and Worcester. Um, and so you have to think about um, the small municipalities especially. Um, one thought is um, Massachusetts already, the state already um, prints the ballots um, for the state. Um, one of the things that I've advocated, and I don't know where that stands right now, if anyone has picked it up, but it does seem to me that there could be a role for the state to handle some of the administrative burden. For instance, the biggest tranche of ballots that go out by mail are usually on the first day of vote by mail. And so I think there, there could be a role potentially for the state to arrange for 
um, print and mail services to get out the first tranche of, of ballots, um, to potentially um, um, pool resources to gain access to um, automated um, um, sorters and, um, and machines that separate ballots from the, the um, outer envelope, things like that. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, my understanding of state election law is some of those things would be difficult to do because there is an assumption that all of the work other than the printing takes place within the municipality. But I do think that, that um, if I were the king of the forest, I would focus on allowing jurisdictions to pool resources like that um, um, just as well as, you know, making it easier to vote by mail. So under that scenario, if the state were actually to receive the ballots, and I'm assuming they look just like a typical ballot that we always, that we were used to seeing. Yes. Um, that you get them in the mail, you send them to, back, under this scenario, it would be back to the state for sorting. And then the town clerks and city clerks would have um, a smaller role in making sure that the collections or, or the, um, the tabulations were correct. Because if the state is sorting, um, I would imagine scanning at the same time, um, what would the role then become for the town? And do you see this as something that might move towards a more centralized system down the road? Um, right, With, well, without getting too far into the details, I'd say that the easiest thing I think to do um, in this scenario would be to have the state responsible for receiving the applications once they had been certified by the localities and mailing, mailing them out. That would take a tremendous burden off off the state, uh, off the off the towns, because all of that happens at once, whereas the return of the ballots comes back over a longer period of time. And then you might think about, well, how is it possible to centralize the return of the ballots, either through them coming to a centralized location or a regional center? Um, I mean, that you know, that that's something that I would hope could be explored in the state. Um, that there, you know, um, even if there was the split, even if there was just, you know, um, splitting open the top of that envelope so you could reach into it. If you had a facility just to do that, um, rather than have, you know, this, this is going to happen to ha have to happen 2 million times. So if you could automate even a small part of the process and deliver ba those ballots in a secure way back to the um, municipalities, then they could more quickly um, compare the signatures and pull them out and prepare them to be scanned. Keep in mind that in Massachusetts still, um, ballots are scanned in the precincts. And I don't see um, this time around a, a movement towards central scanning of absentee ballots. Um, so ultimately, you know, these ballots are going to have to get to the municipalities on election day. Um, to, to be tabulated. Um, so my, my thought is that the more that you could um, automate and centralize the early part of the process, then the, um, you know, the, in, the ending of the process closer to election day at least might be a little more manageable by the, by the jurisdictions. So, so under that scenario, the, at, on, on election day, say November 3rd, the precincts that you would normally go to would also be received, would, would receive these 
batches of ballots and manually, not manually, but put them into the machines like any other ballot. Correct, and that's what's ha- that's what happens right now. Um, and it, and, and it, it will be more, obviously it will slow things down a little bit, but keep in mind that that is done now. And presumably with fewer voters coming in to mark their ballots and scan them, there would be more time during the day for the um, poll workers, you know, to stand in front of that scanner and just feed them in one at a time. It's not the most scintillating of work, but it would be a healthier way of, of, of handling this than having the polling places full of, full of people. Charles, I know you've done a great deal of work over at MIT on the question of uh, the reality or the myth or the you know, legend of voter fraud. Um, I'm sure our listeners are likely concerned that mailed ballots are vulnerable to fraud. Uh, what is your research shown are the vulnerabilities of mail-in voting and, and what can be done to protect the process? Well, just a couple of things right at, right at, the, at the top. Um, in general, all forms of, of, of voting fraud are rare, are very rare in the United States. That's been established by researchers time and time again and, by, and also by um, state and local governments that have um, taken the time really to investigate it. The way I like to put it is that um, voter fraud is, voting fraud is rare. Um, voting fraud and voting by mail is rare also. It's a little less rare. Um, and the reason is that um, it is the fact that, you know, the ballot does leave the um, site of um, election officials and it is a tempting mark under certain circumstances. Now, the system has in place fail safes against um, you know, kind of the most gross types of fraud. So, um, you know, you fill out an application for a, um, a mail ballot. That application is, um, you know, scrutinized. Um, you get sent the mail ballot. And um, when it comes back, um, the signatures are compared. So that's the you know, most important way in which um, ballots are um, are, you know, are protected against fraud is the signature match on the application and then on the return to the ballot. I mean, Massachusetts also limits very um, strictly who can send in, take in um, an application and how the ballot gets there. So, um, you know, so I think that um, what's left is what I call kind of petty fraud, which does show up, um, you know, after every election, you'll get some you know, sad sack story of um, a widow whose um, late husband died two weeks before the election, and she she knew that how he would have voted, and she goes ahead and votes his ballot, something like that, right? And so, I mean, that does happen, and um, we know about that because they get those people get caught. Um, and so, um, I can think of you know, over the last thirty years, one case of widespread wholesale voter fraud, and that it was involved many years ago um, with the mayor of Miami. And um, the thing about wholesale uh, mail fraud is that it's very easy to catch, right? <laughs> um, and election officials are very good at catching it. And so I think, yeah, so, I, so at the end of the day, wholesale fraud is very, very hard to do. And um, there are safeguards against, um, against kind of this little retail fraud um, that we might call it. 
uh, I don't need to tell anyone on this call or our listeners that um, uh, we have we're we're living in a time when partisan animosity is is pretty high. Um, everyone in the process is going to try to figure out whether a new process of uh, mail-in voting will have an impact on the outcome of the election. Uh, we can hear, we can sort of anecdotally suggest that um, perhaps older people would be reluctant in, during COVID-19 to show up in person, but more likely to vote in in person. Um, we can imagine all kinds of populations, all kinds of constituencies changing their behavior by virtue of the fact they they vote in a different way. What has your research shown? Does 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 voting by mail advantage one party or another or one constituency over another? Uh, I'd be curious what you've seen. There's a couple of ways of thinking about the answer to that question. One is um, um, it can favor one party or the other by the construction of the legislation, or it can be used disproportionately by one party or the other. You know, old-fashioned um, vote-by-mail laws that required excuses generally favored Republicans to a small degree. And by the way, all of these are very small, um, very small margins. But the old-fashioned um, laws favored Republicans by a very small degree because the people who used it were businessmen out of town and college students and um, the elderly. Um, three groups that um, historically were, um, were more likely to be Republican. Um, and indeed, in the early days of, of um, the voter ID laws, um, the Republican legislatures that passed them generally um, excluded absentee balloting from voter ID laws. Okay, so, but the world changed. And how did it change? Well, the laws got um, liberalized to the point that the law now you know, doesn't favor any group on its face. And so now the issue is which campaigns are trying to take advantage of the law. And what we've seen since the 2008 election is that um, Democratic campaigns have been more likely to try to lock down their supporters in the early voting period, either during in-person early voting or during absentee voting. And the Obama campaign did this um, famously in 2008. Um, and I think it's that strategic decision by the Obama campaign in 2008 that's kind of branded voting by mail as a democratic vehicle. But if you look at the statistics of who votes by mail, nationwide, I, um, I did some research um, a few weeks ago. I posted it up on, on my blog. I'm looking at 2016. And um, Democrats used um, vote by mail in 2016 by only one percentage point more than Republicans. Um, very small difference overall. Now, if you look in specific states, you'll see Democrats more in some states, Republicans more in some states, but overall, it's pretty much a wash. Um, older people are more likely to, to vote by mail um, for many reasons, one of which being that many states, um, even if they require an, abs um, an excuse to vote absentee, um, don't require an excuse of voters over 60 or 65. Um, and so, um, but again, I mean, that, that even that is a, is a small advantage. And so um, my answer there to who is advantaged is that whichever campaigns take advantage of the, can figure out how to gain an advantage they will take an advantage. And um, both parties um, know how to um, get their 
followers to the polls by driving in into the mailing mail route. We're seeing quotes by both Democratic and Republican strategists right now saying, you know, we're going to we're going to um, play this one hard. Um, and so I think ultimately, and this is true in campaigns in general, what political scientists find time and again, is that if you just change election administration rules, voter, beha voter behavior really doesn't change all that much. What really drives voter behavior changes is what the campaigns do, what the candidates do. And so, um, you know, it'll come down to the better strategists, the more engaged voters, those sorts of things. Charles, that's, that's interesting because one of the tried and true campaign strategies has been to, you know, hold off, save as much money as you can through fundraising and all that. And in the last two weeks before uh, the election, just drowned the airwaves with, uh, with ads supporting your campaign. Now, these, this two-week process, if half, if half of the 4.5 million people that vote in Massachusetts do mail-in voting, that's going to shift the way strategists think in terms of the timing, how they spend their money, when they spend their money. It's, it's an interesting, uh, it'll make, make for an interesting change in the basic approaches to campaigning. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. Um, now, it turns out, you know, there are the states that already are, are mailing ballots to all, of, all the voters. Um, there will be six this time. Um, two new, actually three new states this time. So Washington, Oregon, Colorado um, have been doing this for a number of years. Strategists have a lot to learn for how campaigns have operated in those environments. Um, and you talk to strategists out there, and it's what you would expect. It's that the communications go out longer. Um, but but um, one, of, one of the things is that if, if you are, in fact, driving people to return their ballots sooner and um, you are keeping track of those people, um, certain parts of the campaign become cheaper. So you basically shift campaign spending away from election day, get out the vote efforts toward these communication efforts that are either, you know, focused, you know, they're either, either, either focused on, um, you know, social media or are broadcast out on radio and television. That's really interesting stuff, Charles. Thanks. Um, we are getting near the end of the show, and this is going to be an enormous change, enormous task ahead for the folks on Beacon Hill to make this happen. Um, and we do have a lot of Beacon Hill folks that listen to this podcast. Uh, it sounds like the bill that they have going forward is uh, on its way to uh, to passing. We don't know, but it probably will, as you say. How, I, how do we start to get the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to really embrace this? And uh, we've had so many changes in our lives as a result of COVID. Do you think people will just... Uh, accept this as another change and, and move forward? Or do you think there's going to be um, a lot of work ahead to make this happen and get people comfortable? I think it's all of the above. So this is what, <laughs> this is what we're seeing right now. And I think Massachusetts will be similar to, to many of the states um, as we're watching, watching them vote in the primaries during, um, you know, at the height of the COVID epidemic. So think about Wisconsin. Um, 
you know, they held their primary right at the, at the, at the max of the, both the um, epidemic itself and confusion about the ep epidemic. Um, nonetheless, in the primary there, um, several weeks ago now, 73% of Wisconsinites voted by mail. Um, the previous record was something like 7%. They wow. had more mail ballots in that presidential primary than they've ever had in any general election in the past. And this was in an environment in which, um, you know, you had Supreme Court cases, you had all sorts of things swirling around. And um, nonetheless, they figured it out. So I, I'm actually pretty sanguine um, for a situation where if the, you know, if Beacon Hill can figure this out uh, in the next few days, let's hope, um, time's a wasting. But if they can figure this out, then it does give the state and local officials time to get the word out to their voters. Um, but in particular, it gives time for voters to um, begin practice being male voters if they want to be. There's going to be the state election in September. Um, practice male voting in September. Um, and um, if, you know, depend, again, depending on what the, what the bill is, um, that might, might take many forms. At the very least, it could involve contacting your state or city clerk's office to get your, get your ballot. It might mean that, you know, your ballot, um, at least the application gets mailed to you. In any case, um, take advantage for, uh, of it for the um, fall, fall primary. See how that works. That will also help the um, loca locals practice managing all this paper. So let's view the fall primary, the September primary, as spring training for November. <laughs> I um, love it. And I, you know, I, 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 and if, we, if we view it that way. And then finally, I have to say, this is always how I end my talks when I give talks to the public. We have to be patient. We have to, obviously, we have to make sure, you know, if we want to vote by mail, we get our applications and those sorts of things. We have to advocate for ourselves. But we have to understand that, you know, that election night vote counting is going to take longer than it used to. And there may, in fact, be some mistakes. And they may need to go back and recount some things. So we have to be patient as voters um, with our election officials. And we can help them as well. If we feel up to it, we could even volunteer to be poll workers or to, or to go in in the back office and help them with all this new paperwork. There's a lot of things we can do as voters and citizens other in addition to voting and learning how to vote by mail. Uh, that's a great point. I think more people that volunteer to help out, um, the better that people will feel about this whole process. I mean, I think that trying to get folks that might you know, be down on it to take their uh, emotions and work them positively by actually getting to the ballot box and, and helping out is a really positive way to approach this. I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're in this together and we, we can get through this together. Well, that, that's a, a great, a great remark to, uh, to uh, just about wrap up the show. I want to ask one final question about, uh, uh, well, COVID-19 robbed all of us in Boston of a, a wonderful graduation season this spring. Uh, you're a beloved professor at MIT. I'm sure you love being in front of a class. Um, uh, what does it look like in, you know, be before the election in November, there's gonna be a fall semester. Uh, what does it look like at MIT? Uh, what are the plans for opening? We won't hold you to it, but what have you heard? And uh, you know, what are your feelings about it? Well, I mean, we're hearing that um, you know, MIT, there's gonna be some form of 
people back on campus in the fall, probably. Um, what that looks like is, um, is unknown now. We probably won't know for sure until the end of the month. Um, I think that um, one of the things that I think um, the general public might not um, grasp immediately, but you know, the, the constraining factor for a place like MIT, Harvard, um, residential universities, high residential universities, is the controlling fact factor is um, students in the dormitories um, and um, the question of whether you can actually um, institute social distancing with people you know, under those circumstances. And so, you know, there are plans still floating around about staggered semesters. Um, some people, ironically enough, sitting in their rooms <laughs> doing, um, you know, distance learning um, to a classroom across the street, those sorts of things. And so, so I think the real, the real challenge is what it looks like in a dormitory. Um, it's less of a challenge um, figuring out what you do with graduate students um, you know, who are li living on the economy. And even in the universities um, that are, have more of a commuter um, constituency. Um, so MIT, Harvard, BU, um, and the other residential colleges, I think, are still trying to struggle with, well, what do the dormitories look like? Well, I hope, I hope this all works out for us all, whether it's uh, going back to school or going to the ballot box to, to successfully vote for the next president. So I want to thank you very much, Professor Stewart, for your insight uh, into what may be among the biggest administrative challenges we'll face at the state level government. So thank you very much for your, your, your participation. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Professor. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Well, Mary, uh, what did you think of what Charles Stewart had to say about the elections, how mail-in voting affects uh, people's uh, sentiment, uh, whether you know he has a, a sense of what the challenges are and whether we're, we're well prepared for what's coming in November? Well, he certainly knows his stuff. He's done quite a bit of research on this, and um, he sounds very positive overall of what can happen here, provided that the state really starts to act quickly on this. I think I was also struck by, hadn't thought about this as much until he mentioned it, but it was getting people involved and volunteering more so than in the past. I think when I go to the voting booth, or it's the same people I've seen for a decade. And uh, trying to, and that's great that they do that because it's a long day. But in, but I think they're going to need more volunteers for managing this mail process. It's a great way to get people involved and get them comfortable with the process itself. I also want to say that um, this bill coming out of the election laws committee at in, on Beacon Hill, um, it's really important that when it came out it wasn't just one party, Democrats voting in favor of it, that Republicans also approved it to move it forward uh, for a, a full vote. And I, bipartisanship in this one is just of the utmost importance. So I hope it stays as, it, as this bill is debated, that um, people are very aware of the importance of bipartisanship for this. In the end, we have to keep people safe and uh, people have to feel strongly that our democratic process is working and working well. And um, let's hope that you know, many people agree. Well, I'm relieved to hear you say that, Mary. Uh, in a divisive time, uh, it's good to hear we have agreement on one of our most sacred rights, the right to vote. Uh, I'm also very uh, interested and pleased to hear 
what our guest said about uh, the more engagement, more involvement we see amongst our citizens, the more at ease we'll be with ultimately the outcome one way or the other. So uh, all in all, great show. Thank you very much for joining me on Hubwonk. Sure, Joe. Great to be back on Hubwonk. <laughs> this has been Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are three ways you can support us. You can give us a five-star review, you can subscribe to the show, and you can share it on social media. If you want to support Hubwonk or Pioneer Institute, you can find us at pioneerinstitute.org backslash Hubwonk. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>